0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue week one of our current series called Life Lessons from David, the man who would be king, let's turn now to 1 Samuel 17, verses 31 to 54, for today's message on learning to fight in your own armor.
1: It's easy to view the account of David defeating Goliath as a picture or a metaphor encouraging us that we can slay the giants in our lives. Now, Unfortunately, that has become one of the primary ways the story is applied. But when we do that, we miss the real drama of the story and more so. We also miss the real point of application. Let's back up. The story of David, even though it contains so many life lessons for us, is in one way so different from what any one of us will ever experience. David is the anointed king of Israel and the forerunner and representative of the Messiah Jesus. He is the one appointed by God to bring salvation to Israel and the one whose victories prefigure the ultimate triumph of his greater son. And so this is not a story of how to conquer the giants in your life. This is a story of how God's anointed has conquered the giants in your life on your behalf. Only once that is understood are we in a place to apply our own warfare to the giants we face. For we have a strong champion whose name is Jesus who has overcome the enemy of our souls on our behalf. And because of his great victory, we too in his wake are victorious. If you want a point of identification, identify with Israel, who after David overthrows Goliath, surge forward and send the Philistines to flight. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's tell the story the way it's written. I want to tell this story in five movements or five great sweeping events. Here's the first. David is portrayed as the shepherd of God's people. That's part of the story found in 1 Samuel 17, 31-37. You remember that Eliab, David's older brother, is upset with what he sees as his younger brother's arrogance. David has been repeating words all around the camp of Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And finally, as David will not stop repeating this phrase, his words are repeated to King Saul. As we noticed last time, David is young, we placed his age around 15, maybe 16, but as young as he is, he is brought before the king. Now I'm reading verses 32 to 33. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. And so Saul, who might have appreciated the courage and zeal of this young man, would not send him. He's most likely less concerned with David's death, but rather what David's death would mean for Israel, it would mean defeat. I find it hard to place blame on Saul at this point in the narrative. David is too young for the army. He has no military experience, and this would be disaster. In response, David lays out his credentials. He may be young, but he has been protecting sheep. And while he was doing that, on one occasion, he killed a lion and another occasion, a bear. He describes taking the lion by the beard and striking him. And Psalm doesn't know this, but David is describing his calling. In Psalm 78, verses 70 to 71, Asaph writes, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. See, Asaph knew that which all Israel would come to know. Watching over sheep, which seems to have been despised by Eliab and David's older brothers, was the ideal training ground for David's life mission. See, God never wastes our experiences. Goliath was not unlike the bear who came to maul God's sheep. And David, God's chosen shepherd, would protect the sheep God had entrusted to him. And before we move on, we do well to remember Jesus' words in John 10, as he describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It is this role that David is fulfilling. Saul doesn't realize that David is conveying something to him but he knows enough to let him into the battle. All he says is, go and the Lord be with you. All right, David is determined to be the shepherd of God's people, and we know this is because God has chosen him for the task. Let's move to the second movement in the story. David selects the tools of his warfare. Verse 38 says, Then Saul clothed David in his armor. The passage describes a helmet of bronze, a coat of mail, and a sword. David tries to walk and finds himself unable to use them. Verses 39 to 40 say, Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. I find it fascinating to read this account against the background of Samuel having anointed both of these men to be king. Saul, the first king, and the rejected king. David, the man who would follow him. Both have the same task from the Lord. Finish the job Moses gave you. Secure the promised land for the people of God and protect them from their enemies. And as these two men meet for the first time, the issues they discuss are the weapons of their warfare. Saul with his armor. And David with the weapons of a shepherd. The first man comes having deeply bought into the idea of the traditional role of the king, authority, traditional weapons. The second finds himself unable to function within that kind of a system. You remember in Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus spoke of the kings of the earth who lorded over their followers, but he had come differently, meekly as a servant. You know, I entitled this message, Learning to Fight in Our Own Armor. I'm reminded of Second Corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4. There Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. See, in that passage, Paul speaks of destroying all arguments raised against God. Furthermore, Paul will acknowledge how often people will view him as weak and then argue that his only reason to boast is in the Lord. I hope you won't find me taking too many liberties with his account of David, as I find the story of David and Saul's armor to be significant. David will not be a king like Saul. Neither will he wage war as Saul did. He will use the weapons that God has supplied him with. His training was in the fields as a shepherd, not in the halls of the power of the world's kings. I think there's a lesson here for us. If we are to live lives of significance, we will have to learn to fight the Lord's battles according to the training that He supplies. Have a look at the gifts that God has given you. Become familiar with the strengths that He has supplied. Know the Scriptures well and rely on what God has promised. And so David is a shepherd, and no one has heard of a shepherd king before. But because he knows God's preparation for his life, he chooses the tools for his battle, a sling a shepherd's pouch, a staff, and five smooth stones. Most Bible teachers will argue that the typical stones would have been about the size of a tennis ball. This he takes into battle. Now comes the third movement in the story. David's confidence is not in his weapons, but in his God. David now, dressed in the entire of a shepherd boy, steps out onto the dry riverbed and faces off against Goliath, the man of war. Verse 42 reads, "And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance." See, David's physical appearance is mentioned, but it is not that which impresses Goliath. You might have expected Goliath to be relieved this would be a short fight. But here we must remember that he is a champion, and every time he strikes down a great and mighty man, his reputation in standing in Philistia is greatly enhanced. This will do nothing for him. It is merely the slaughter of a teenage Jewish shepherd boy. He feels insulted. Verse 43, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now listen to David's response. I'm reading verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Please don't misunderstand this interaction. Yes, uh, Goliath is engaging in the kind of trash talk that happens between people before they go to war to slaughter each other. It's an attempt to intimidate people before the battle. But that's not what David is up to. Richard Phillips says that David is pronouncing sentence on Goliath for the capital crime of blasphemy. In Leviticus 24, verse 16, we read, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. David, argues Phillips, is acting as God's representative, delivering a just sentence on the man who sojourned in Israel. For David, this is not simple warfare. This is about God's holiness, his glory, his great name, which is to be spread throughout the earth. This is what Moses envisioned when he said in Numbers 14:21 that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so to come to Goliath in the name of the Lord is to come as God's emissary, pronouncing on him the judgment God has declared. And there is here a clear parallel between this account and the account of Moses standing before Pharaoh and demanding that he release Israel. Who was Moses against the power of Egypt? But Moses had come in the name of the living God. In Exodus 9, 16, Moses tells Pharaoh what God is saying. I have raised you up to show my power in you, so that my name might be declared in all the earth. And David, like Moses, is saying the same thing. And when we come back, I will show you why David and Goliath tells us about Jesus and his salvation.
0: As we're discovering the real issues behind the story of David defeating Goliath, we begin to see an overarching theme. In a sense, This is about how God's chosen servant has conquered the battle for us. In the end, we see that this story is pointing to what Christ did on our behalf. There's much yet to be learned, and after the break, Dr. Neufeld shows us how we can rightfully apply these lessons from the battlefield in our own lives. Back to the Bible Canada is just not a small team of people in an office, but a team of thousands across this nation who all share the common dream of seeing people confronted with the truth of the gospel. We're so blessed to be backed by faithful and generous supporters who do so much in making this ministry a reality. Sharon recently wrote in saying, we wanna be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. If you believe in the mission of this ministry, please join the cause. Your gifts amplify the sharing of the good news. Consider sending a gift today to help reach our year-end goal by December 31st. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And from our family at Back to the Bible Canada to yours, Merry Christmas.
1: We have noted that there is a parallel between Pharaoh and Goliath and between Moses and David. God had raised up Pharaoh and allowed him to become as powerful as he was so that when God devastated him, he would showcase to the whole earth how mighty and how glorious the God of heaven actually is. Listen to what David tells Goliath on the battlefield. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that, and now listen to this, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear for the battle is the Lord and he will give you into our hand. Now, and so I hope you can see that this is not the story of the little guy overcoming the huge corporate giant. But rather, this is the story of God's determination to declare his glory, that he alone determines the rise and fall of all, and that in the end of the day, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, we've noticed three movements in the story. The first is David's calling. He is the anointed shepherd of God's people. Second, David's tool for battle is the very means by which God has been training him. And third, David's confidence is in the promise God has made, that he will defend the honor of his name. Now let's move to the fourth movement, David's actual victory over Goliath. The actual battle itself must have lasted only a very short period of time. It seems like all the drama of this account was in the build up to the fight. The fight itself is almost anticlimactic. There are only two verses describing the actual conflict, they're verses 48 and 49. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell to the ground. We can almost imagine Goliath, big and slow, partially protected by his shield bearer moving forward. In contrast, David is fast. He reaches into his bag, pulls out that tennis ball-sized stone, places it into the sling, whirls it over his head as he moves in. He has practiced this matter hundreds of times before. The rock comes out at a speed of perhaps over 200 kilometers an hour, a ferocious speed that blasts its way past the helmet and crushes the skull of Goliath. He's probably not dead by the time he hits the ground. Uh, By the description of what follows, he must have been completely incapacitated and in death throes, writhing on the ground. The battle is over almost as soon as it has begun. What happens next emphasizes that short battle. The inspired writer simply says there was no sword in David's hand when he accomplished that. But David is not done. He runs over to the corpse of Goliath and draws his sword out of the sheath. Clearly, Goliath did not even have time to unsheath his own sword. This battle happened so fast. But David takes the sword, a sword he will later keep, and uses it to thrust the final death blow into the body of the man and then uses the same sword to cut off his head. You know, more than one person reading this account finds it gruesome. But just to understand, there was never any doubt that this battle was unto death. Had David not delivered the death blow, neither the Philistine nor the Israelites would have believed in the finality of the battle. With that comes the final movement of our story. The battle symbolizes the final victory of God. Let's continue to follow the story. In consequence of this victory, several things occur. First, the Philistines, in shock, flee from the battle line. For 40 days, they have stood before the battle line of Israel, proud and confident, shouting their taunts and blaspheming the name of their God. And now, in horror and disbelief, they run, hoping they can make it back to their fortified cities before they are overtaken and killed. And second, as shocked as the Philistines are, Israel realizes what God has done, and with a shout, they surge over the dry wadi, inflicting heavy losses on the Philistines and plundering their camp. But David at this moment does something we might find curious. Instead of joining in the victory over the Philistines, verse 54 says, And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Because we're so familiar with Jerusalem, we might think nothing of this. After all, isn't Jerusalem the capital of Israel? Well, no, it's not. At this time, Jerusalem was a Jebusite stronghold in Israel. The entire drama of this account is that Israel failed to do what God had commanded. They had not driven out the inhabitants of the land, and the Philistines to the west, and Jerusalem, right in the heart of the territory of Judah, was controlled by people who openly worshipped idols and cast aspersions on the living God. And by taking the head of Goliath to Jerusalem, David was proclaiming the Lord's victory over all of Israel. As their anointed king, he would proclaim God's rule over the entire land. And by the way, as a necessary aside, I think this also explains why it is that David took five stones and placed them into his shepherd's bag as he entered the battle arena against Goliath. Perhaps you might find this too symbolic, but do consider that the Philistines were governed by five royal cities, all of which were highly fortified. I think David was pronouncing a stone of victory over all five cities. He was proclaiming the victory of the Lord, his God, over this entire land promised by God to the children of Abraham, and he was rejoicing over this fact that God would do it miraculously. For those of us who find the accounts of warfare and of the killing to be difficult, let me take you to the New Testament. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. From that passage and comparing it to the account of David and Goliath, let me draw several conclusions. First, notice that Paul says, for believers, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with the evil powers that stand behind them. We should notice that Jesus was able to accomplish that which David could never accomplish. Jesus said demons to flight in terror. David only routed foreign armies. But we might say that the warfare that David faced was only a type or a symbol of the ancient warfare that has always plagued the human race. We have an ancient enemy, Satan, who seeks our undoing. He inspires wars and hatred and murder and lies and slander and unbearable suffering in this earth. Jesus defeated Satan in a great battle on the cross, and now Satan's ability to win the war against the human race has been lost, for Christ has triumphed over him in his cross. The battles David fought only prefigure the great and grand battle for this world. But because God cannot be defeated, Christ has triumphed. David's triumph symbolizes the great triumph in the end of the day. Second, please also notice that like David, we are in a genuine battle. No, we're not to fight physical battles as David did, but we are to fight the battles for truth of the gospel and for the souls of men and women. And that brings me back to the theme of this series. If we want to live lives that matter, Or to live lives that make an impact for the kingdom, we will do well to remember that we will be called upon to fight evil. And we will need to fight it, as David did, with the assurance that we wage war in the name of the Lord our God, whose glory fills the heavens and the earth. Some of us have the mistaken notion that we can discover God's purposes for our lives and then after that have fullness and meaning and wonderful peace devoid of conflict. But if you want to live for God, you will face foes on every side. And you can only be victorious if you trust fully in your God. Unless we see that the battle is the Lord and that our weapons cannot win this fight, we cannot prevail. Many will be horrified to know that when we live with purpose, we are indeed entering into a warfare. But we are. But if we learn to fight in the armor that God has provided... Described in Ephesians 6, we will prevail. The battle, as David would say, is the Lord's, and our Lord
0: conquers over all. John, this is a a great series, and and one of the things you brought out, I think, is this whole idea of, of David being a shepherd and what that meant relative to his battle. He wasn't out there as a conqueror, he was out there as a shepherd. Now, what does that mean?
1: You know, it's 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 interesting because I had that when I was reading Psalm 78. And I, I began to see how Asaph, who, by the way, was appointed as a worship leader by David. So if there's a man that knew David, it would have been Asaph. And he builds that connection between David's work before he was the king as a shepherd to the kind of king that he became. And we really do see how God never wastes the experiences that David has, doesn't waste our experiences either. And he shapes the kind of king that David will later become. And that does tell us something about how our God rules over us. He protects us from all evil. I mean, it's interesting that David would say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, he, he's convinced that God's rod and his shepherd's tools will protect him in the final day. So what David learned and what God does is really one and the same. That's what's built into the
0: story, and it's really precious, I think. Living as a faithful Christian isn't a calling that will ever be easy. But when we understand the reality that God has conquered the battle for us, we can have confidence that He will see us through every time. I pray that this message has been deeply encouraging for you, whatever you're facing today. Please join us tomorrow for another great lesson from the life of David, the man after God's own heart, as we wrap up week one of this series. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. So this is it, the last couple of days before the new year. So we want to express our gratitude for all you've done to support the year-end ministry campaign. And if you've not had the opportunity yet, today through to midnight on December 31st is critical for helping us reach our year-end goal of $517,000. Your gifts go towards the ongoing creation and distribution of all our Bible teaching and engagement resources, including print, video, audio programming, along with purchasing airtime across Canada, and so much more. Together, we're making God's word of truth available to as many people within Canada and around the world as possible. Please consider your donation today to receive a 2023 tax receipt. You can do so at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.